0: Now, some of you have unique tastes. This is not the time to let your uniqueness shine. I'm looking for normal answers, okay? So that may eliminate some of you from participating. I recognize that. (laughs) Peanut butter and... Okay. I heard some things. Okay. Daniel in the... Okay. Moses and the... Ten Commandments. Burning bush. Those are all right, yeah. There, there's no wrong answers so far, right? Okay. Jonah and the... Yeah, whale, big fish, whatever it is. I forget the VeggieTales version of it, but it's probably... this. It should be close, I guess. Anyway, it's probably Jonah and the big pickle. I don't know, but that works on a couple levels. Um, jelly is just one thing that goes with peanut butter, right? Ask, ask my boys. They make... Um, fluffernutter, right? Where you take the peanut butter and you do marshmallows on top of it, toast that in a toaster oven. Oh man, it smells like s'mores are happening in the house. It's an amazing smell. Um, lots of things go with that. Celery. When you get older, you put peanut butter on celery. When you try to get your kids to eat celery, which has zero nutritional value, by the way, I don't know if you know that it's only good in soups, but, uh, you put raisins on it and then to make it appetizing, you can call it ants on a log. Who comes up with this stuff? Um, The lion's den is a moment in Daniel's life, a significant moment, a sensational moment, but not a moment where he proved himself. He didn't behave differently in the lion's den than he did before. Like, he didn't, like, take on. Like, you think of Daniel's in lion's den, you think he's got a sword and a shit. He took a nap because God was with him. And because of his faithfulness leading up to that, Moses and the burning bush where God spoke to him or the Ten Commandments, moments in the prophet's life. Significant, but not just the only thing about their lives. Jonah and the big fish or the whale, whatever it is, it's, it's kind of the sensational thing that sticks out. In our mind, this cinematic big fish incident, though, was, um, was pretty awesome and spectacular. Jonah's swallowed by this big fish, this, this whale thing, and he spit out after three days, and uh, Jonah was spared, his life was spared, and he was useful to God, and yet we don't see evidence that he, Jonah, brought God any pleasure. It's as if he was a necessary instrument... And I condition that phrase, of course, to accomplish something greater. It's interesting that most of our minds go to the big fish instead of the greatest miracle. You see, there's something far greater that happens in Jonah than the big fish. Now, if you're with us in our Bible study groups of all ages, from but especially our middle and high school uh, students—sorry, middle and high school students—and the adults did some deep diving into Jonah they're working through some of the minor prophets now. And you know, you can get ahead of me a little bit in your thinking, that really the greatest miracle, the biggest thing that happens in the book of Jonah is the fact that an entire city repents and turns to God. It's the greatest evangelistic crusade with the worst evangelist ever. He, he, he's the worst missionary, he's one of the worst prophets, and he's forgettable to most of the Jewish people by the time Jesus rolls around. The incident at Nineveh is not, but Jonah's name basically disappears. How do I know? You've got Philip walking up to Jesus and saying, can any good thing come out of Galilee, come out of Nazareth? Jonah was from there. They had totally just erased him from history. Jesus remembered him, though, and I'll come to that in a moment. In this age that we live in where people love trying to explain away the supernatural things that happen in the Bible because they make us uncomfortable with the natural reasoning and logic of man, there are some textual critics, and they probably said it like this, right, that say, well, Jonah... Jonah's in the Bible, of course. I don't know why they use this voice. Jonah's in the Bible, of course, but it's, it's fiction at best. Probably allegory or an Old Testament version of a parable, Oh, contraire, mufraire. Um And that's my foreign language adventure there. Um, that's, that's a little fishy. That's the best one I've got, I'm sorry. Here's why. Because when allegories used in the Old Testament, across the board, they would use fictional characters and places. But 2 Kings reports Jonah as actually a successful prophet. Jonah, in fact, preached so well that Jeroboam II decided to change and respond to Jonah's message, refortify the borders of Israel to keep them from being wiped out as a people, so Jonah is known as a successful prophet that hears from God that people respond to. Is it fiction? I don't think so. Second Kings 14 says he's a real person. We know these places are real places. Still others see it as kind of a parable. A simple tale used to illustrate a point about the storyteller. Well, that doesn't make any sense because there's so many points here. It's not limited to one. And it's too complex of a literary book There's a lot happening in this little book from a literary standpoint. I don't want to geek out. There's only three of us in the room that like, oh, tell me more. But um, there's a lot going on here. There's a lot of texture from a literary standpoint in the book of Jonah. Known places are mentioned. uh, That speaks to the accuracy of the book. Jonah was a prophet from Gath Heifer. He lived in the reign of Jeroboam II. He was recognized, most importantly, by Jesus Christ who gave affirmation not only that Jonah was real, but that the fish was real. It happened the way it happened, and it shaped Jesus' calling for repentance for the city of Jerusalem. So, I've probably not studied as long as some of those textual critics, but they're wrong. And Jesus is right. I want to view Scripture the way Jesus viewed Scripture, as authoritative, inerrant, infallible, and complete. If we were going to... Port Jonah, I don't know that VeggieTales is looking for a new storyline, right? They would probably do it all in one, but if we were going to give it to Netflix or probably Pure Fix, let's be honest, let's give it to somebody we trust a little more than Netflix or Amazon Prime, we're giving it to them. They're probably going to get seven episodes out of the book of Jonah. Let me give them to you. You, you. you know this in your mind, but let's walk through them just to kind of give us some anchors to tie to. The first one is Jonah's call and disobedience. So the phone rings, and Jonah not only sees the caller ID and ignores it, but gets his things and moves to a different city, right? You talk about ghosting somebody. He thought he was ghosting somebody, but the somebody was God did not turn out the way he thought it would. Jonah's call in disobedience, Jonah and the pagan sailors. There's quite a bit there. That'll take up the lion's share of our text this morning. Jonah's grateful, self-assessing prayer, sorry for all the descriptors, but it it means something, right? He he has a grateful response from the belly of the well. He responds with a prayer of gratitude and, and, a, and a real assessment of himself and recognizes that God is God and He's not. So, so there's like some hope there. You're thinking, oh wow, we're taking a turn. Like if you didn't know, if I asked you to read Jonah like you didn't know how it turned out, right? When you got to the prayer part, you'd be like, praise God. That's exactly right. This man's got some sense. Look, he's under conviction. And then what happens? He gets spit out, and in chapter 3, he gets recommissioned, and he's obedient. Ah, oh, praise the Lord. What a story. God's turned it around. You know, there's a story out on Contemporary Christian Radio. The Lord turned it around, and he did. Hallelujah. And then we see Jonah and the Ninevites. That's quite a story, him preaching repentance. You're all going to die. And they're like, hey, this guy's serious. We're going to repent. Totally flipped the script on him. Did not expect that. And then we see Jonah's angry, selfish prayer. What? So he's chastised and prays with gratitude, and then he's, he sees God move in a way that there's really no other record of this kind of move of God on a city in all of Scripture. And what does he do? Stand back and go, wow, thank you, Lord. Lay down on his face and pray. No, he's angry and selfish. And then Jonah gets an education from God on compassion. That's pretty remarkable. This is not the way you'd write a story. It's certainly not the way you'd write a story about yourself if you wanted to make a mark on history. I love the accuracy and the transparency of God's word. Um, as you're looking in chapter 1, I want to give you... a I know they're looking at the slides and thinking, he's got four slides for the first point. I'm going somewhere with that. Give me a second. Don't write down the first thing you see. But if you're taking notes this morning, three headers that'll navigate this first part of Jonah with us. You know, you could say, as you look at the text, that God has a plan for Jonah. Couldn't you? That's a legit point. God has a plan for Jonah. As we look at Jonah 1 and 2, because there's a call for Jonah to go. But there's something bigger at play, isn't there? Like you have read ahead, you know where this is going. Well, then you could say, well, well, maybe we should say God has a plan for Nineveh, right? And Jonah's a part of that plan, and, and, and that's probably a little more accurate, but let's be honest. God had a plan for the fish. God had a plan for this plant. God had a plan for the worm that ate the plant. God had a plan for the sailors. God's got a plan for the sea. God's got a plan for the storm. How about we do this? God has a plan, And let's write down that one. I think that's the final slide. Yeah, God has a plan. Let's just write that down. God has a plan. If I were titling Jonah chapter one, I would just say God's way is best. God's way is best. And you're gonna see that flesh out in front of your eyes this morning. God has a plan. And what is it? Look at verses one and two with me. The word of the Lord comes to Jonah, the son of Amittai saying, arise, go to Nineveh, that great city and call out against it for their evil has come up to me. The first two points move quickly, so hang with me because you know the story, right? The plan originated with God. Jonah did not get a map and think, where's the most unreached people group? Where are the most hostile people that I can respond to? He's not the IMB. This is not a mission board meeting. He's not even the prophet Isaiah who got to preach against the enemies, but Isaiah got to stay behind the confines of Israel and do it. Like, he walked around like a madman a couple times. That's a whole different sermon. But, but Isaiah gets to preach against the enemy tribes and nations and call woe upon them. But, but he did it from kind of, you know, within Israel. Jonah's got to go somewhere. Hmm. So the call originates with God. The plan involves Jonah. Make no mistake. God's call on your life is not because he wants to make you a superstar. God has a plan for your life because his name is worth your every breath of saying yes, Lord. I'll go where you want me to go. I'll love who you want me to love. I'll serve who you want me to serve. And I'll say what you want me to say because you're worthy, God. God has a plan. It, it involved Jonah. It involved uh, these pagan sailors. It involved that great fish. I spoke on that. The plan was to go to Nineveh. What's the big deal? Just another city. No, the enemy city. Not just the enemy city, but Gentiles an enemy people. Not just an enemy city full of Gentiles, but a people that Jonah had a special kind of hatred for. Jonah was a prejudiced bigot. I'll try to be nice. Jonah was a prejudiced bigot, and it shows up in the text. And Jonah is out of God's will in that state, and so are you, and so am I. If we've got the message that's literally life and death for eternity, and we're hesitant to take it to this people group or that people group because we have an opinion, your opinions are of no consequence to eternity. You and I need to be faithful to say, yes, Lord, to go where he sends us, when he sends us, to engage everybody that will listen with the glorious gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jonah had some issues. He had so many issues, he had subscriptions. Sorry, moving on. Jonah um, was being commanded to go to a hard place and preach a hard message to a hard people, and he was already a hardened prophet. The plan was really about God. It was about God's message, God's mission, God's terms, and God getting all the glory. And it hasn't changed. The plan for the church today is still all about God, about God's mission, about God's message, God's terms, and God getting all the glory. The second thing I want you to notice this morning is um, his response. Jonah has a plan. God has a plan, and Jonah has a plan. Surely the prophet of God is going to say yes Lord right and just be like I'll say yes Lord yes and just respond in a wonderful way in a caravan of praise around him no Jonah gets up the Bible says he rose to flee to go to Tarshish you know the text he goes down to Joppa finds a ship pays the fare goes down and tries to flee away from the presence of the Lord. Jonah flees. He literally goes the opposite direction as hard and as fast as he can. Jonah's plan is not simply to tweak God's plan or to add to God's plan. It's literally to do the opposite. It's not an enhancement, it's completely different. I don't want to hasten too much to application, but we might as well touch it while you're here. God has a plan, and man has a plan. God has a way, and man has his ways. And our ways, left to our own devices, are in direct conflict with God's. Because we value self, we want to preserve self at the cost of anything and everybody. And the way that we live our life, the Bible calls sinful, and it invites the wrath of God. God had a plan. Jonah had a plan. Third point this morning, you're like, wow, we're going to be out of here in five minutes. You know better. God had a plan. Jonah had a plan. Third point, God pursues Jonah. Okay, now let me just, what you ought to put in parentheses beside Jonah if you're taking notes is God pursues, ready, the rebel. And some of you right there, right there, I ought to put a pen in it and you ought to just weep in thanksgiving that God pursued you in your sin, that God came after you. What a God. What a Savior. What a love get back to Jonah. God's going to use several things to get Jonah's attention. And I'm going to ask you some questions this morning. As we read through this, I'm asking you to read with a bit of fresh eyes this morning and not get so focused on the fish. Spoiler alert, we won't make it to the fish this morning. We won't get there because the fish is not the main point of the text today. Not the main point of Jonah's story, but it's where our mind goes. The first thing God uses is the storm. In verse 4, I'm going to put it on the screen. I won't read it, but you'll notice God sends the wind. There's a mighty tempest on the sea, and the ship is about to break up. Jonah's actions have now directly impacted and threatened the people around him. Jonah's actions have now directly impacted and threatened the people around him. Notice God didn't speak to Jonah directly here. He's using the elements. I'm going to suggest to you he's using the storm first. He's then going to use the sailors, and he's going to use the sea to get Jonah's attention. But God has sent this wind instead of being a blessing as one of God's people, Jonah has become a curse to those around him. I meet people who uh, think God owes them something in their rebellious state. I do. And, and they, they think that God needs to get them out of this jam. If God just does this for me, then I'll consider submitting my life to the Lord. If God would just do one thing, just do this for me. That's not how this works. No, that's not how this works. When you're in a rebellious state for God, God will use any means that brings him pleasure, glory, and honor to get your attention and he uses all of creation to do that. The Bible tells us that we look around and see the hand of God that's created the heavens and the earth and all points in between, and he's done that to get our attention to point to the fact that he's the creator and the ruler. God will use circumstance. He can use prosperity, and he can use pain to get our attention. All of the things that that move around us in life can point us to god it is the sheer grace and mercy and goodness of god that god revealed himself to you the first time do you understand that when you first the first time you heard that god so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in the lord jesus christ should not perish but have everlasting life do you understand the first time that you heard that message it was the greatest gift of grace you could have ever had in your life i mean Wow, to hear that message that heaven would come down to earth and not leave us wandering around trying to grope and find our way. No, that God would reveal himself to us in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ and then tell us about it in a language we can understand. But how many of us responded to the gospel the first time that we heard? When I take an informal survey, I find that most don't. Most didn't. It took time after time again. Do you recognize that you didn't deserve a second chance? You didn't deserve a second call? When God called Jonah and said, Go to Nineveh, and Jonah took off the other direction, the story should have ended there. Because he had thousands that hadn't bowed the knee to a false God. He could have picked another. But God is showing us something through this passage, not so much about Jonah, but about this missionary God who pursues the rebel. The Bible tells us that we've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We've all gone astray and we lead others astray with us. Here's the question I have for you. Can God not see us or know what's up when we try to hide from God? Has anybody in here ever tried to hide from God? This week I was pleased to have, um, I started to say Dr. Andrew Thiel because that's, he should have a doctorate in just handling things, that's his, he's the handler, but then that sounds like you're well-armed and ready to take, like be, be my bodyguard, but he just went sure, yeah, whatever, okay. So so Andrew Thiel, the handler, was, uh, was with me at church this week and, and we were talking about some things on the property and. And, and Andrew was just kind of handling some things. And we were talking about this morning right before service. He said, I've been attending this church, did you say 100 years? How long did you say? 17, 18 years he's been attending Grace Covenant while it's been in this building. He said, I went in rooms that I didn't even know existed this week. And you got to love the feels, right? Because Kylie's eyes got big. She said, ooh, if we ever played hide and seek, you'd know where to hide. Don't you love that? I just loved everything about that. They didn't know I was going to use it as an illustration, but it's it's a great thing. But there's nowhere you can hide from God. God sees everything. The Bible tells us in Psalm 94 that he who planted the ear, does he not hear? He who formed the eye, does he not see? The Lord knows the thoughts of man, and they're but a breath. Here's another question I have for you. Can a man hide from God? The Bible says no. Jeremiah the prophet in Jeremiah 23 says, uh, quoting God, Am I a God at hand, declares the Lord, and not a God far away? Am I so far away that I can't see you? Can a man hide himself in secret places so that I cannot see him, declares the Lord? Do I not fill the heaven and the earth, declares the Lord? You can't outrun God. You can't get to a place where God can't see you. And you can't hide deep enough in sin and rebellion that he can't reach you where you are the mighty storm the threat of shipwreck that's come do you see the storm that's come as God's punishment on Jonah or do you see the storm as God's way of getting the prophet back on track how do you think Jonah understood it in the moment there's the storm what about the sailors Jonah's actions are now directly impacted them. I'm sure Jonah thought when he was heading down to try to get away, nobody will ever know God even said anything to me, right? Because it wasn't like it was on loudspeakers. Jonah, go down. I don't know how it happened, but it wasn't where other people heard. The word of the Lord came to Jonah. The word of the Lord came to Jonah. God spoke to Jonah. Jonah heard it and just went, didn't even say no to God, just went the other direction. You know, we say a lot more by our actions than we say by our words. Some of us talk a big game, but we're walking the opposite direction. It just is a contradiction. How's your audio and video? Are they in sync? Are they out of sync? Jonah's are way out of sync. We're going to see it play out in front of us. No one will really know. Jonah's maybe going through his head. Nobody will ever know that God is dealing with me. If I don't say anything, I'm not going to say anything. Nobody will ever know if I go the opposite direction. Nobody even cares what I do. Certainly nobody cares about the Ninevites. This is my business, it's personal, and it's private. Listen to me and hear me. You may be sitting here this morning under the sound of my voice. You might be watching online today and you might be thinking to yourself, hey, Jonah's right. I mean, what I do is my business alone. I can do what I want, when I want, where I want. My plan for my life is just that. It's my plan for my life, and it only affects me. That's the same lie the devil told Eve in the garden. Your body, your rights, your life. You are delusional if you think that your actions only affect You're delusional this morning if you think that your rebellion against God doesn't directly impact those that are closest to you, whether they're Christians or not. If they are Christians, your Christian family and friends are paying a price emotionally, physically, and spiritually for your rebellion. They're losing sleep over you, praying for you. Calling out to God, well, they should do that. I'll set them free from that. You can't. That's not how this works. They love you. And they love Jesus so much, they're not going to let you go. If they're not Christians, then you're reinforcing their own state of rebellion and leading them astray with you. You are adding to their deception instead of calling them to God. Your actions affect everybody around you, whether you see it or not, whether you believe it or not they affect others. Good, praise God, but the context here is in a negative way. Look at verse five. The mariners were afraid. Each cried out to his God. So how do these sailors respond? They respond with fear. They respond with prayer to their false gods. Look at chapter uh, chapter 1, verse 5 in your Bibles. I'm going to keep a couple of these off the screen for a moment. I'll put some more on the screen in a minute. But they respond with fear. They respond with prayer to their false gods. Then they start taking the steps they know to do to minimize the damage. They can't stop the storm. They're going to try to stop the hemorrhaging. They can't stop the storm from coming, but they're trying to minimize the damage. They start throwing stuff overboard. They they don't know how they're going to get through this. They're looking for Jonah. Hey, where's that other guy that's on the ship? Why why is it just us working? Uh, Somebody go find Jonah. Where did they find Jonah? Well, they found him where? Asleep. He couldn't have cared less about how his actions were impacting those around him. He's so self-absorbed and lacking self-awareness, that everything else can go to pot, doesn't matter to me. Wow. You say, and this is just a word of caution to those of you who say, I'm going to do this because I have such peace. I just feel such peace from the Lord about this decision. I've got such inner peace about this. Listen, you can take Valium and sleep at night. Your sleep at night doesn't mean that you're in the center of God's will. The fact that you've got peace, a lot of people are comfortable with their rebellion against God. Jonah is literally going the opposite direction, jeopardizing the lives of those around him. And he's like, catch y'all later, I'm going to take a nap. I'm good. He's not good. He was asleep. The captain finds him in verse 6 and says, well, what are you doing? Hello? Sorry to disturb your nap, sir. Um, We're all about to die. Could you call out to your God? Because none of ours are answering. And maybe yours might be the one that would have a thought for us. Wow. Of all of those on board this ship, who showed more proper fear of God? Jonah the prophet or the pagan sailors? Yikes. I made a note here. I won't chase it because it might have me saying things that are off script. But I said it's amazing how those who reject God or don't know him as Savior still recognize that he's the present help when trouble comes. Just watch the politicians when the nation starts to crumble. We need prayer. Wait, you said we couldn't. What do you want from us? People are watching us live this thing called life. And if you're living for Jesus Christ, people notice. And if you're living for yourself, people notice. But if you're living for yourself and you try to talk about Jesus Christ, they go, Your audio and video are out of sync. They cast lots to find out who the problem is. Shocker, it's Jonah. They said, what's up with you? And for the first time, Jonah speaks in the text in verse 9. Jonah says, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and dry land. L- look at that. I am a Hebrew. That's true. Good. Well said. And I fear the Lord. mm Mm-mm. 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 Mm Hmm, the God of heaven who made the sea. I mean, did he think about what he was saying here? I fear the Lord, the God of heaven that made the sea. Yeah, I I wonder if God went like, oh, it's funny you mention the sea, Jonah. I've got a plan for your life. And I don't think they'll be writing a gospel tract about it. Who made the sea and the dry land. Funny you mention dry land. You're going to get there, but not in the way you think. So, so, Jonah's up here, like, I don't know if you remember, if anybody watched It's a Wonderful Life, we see it every summer. All I can picture is when he goes back into the town, right, and he sees his mom, right? Uh, He sees his mom, but she doesn't recognize it's him, and he goes back in there, he opens the door, he says, hey, let me in, this is where I need to live and stuff. He said, I talked to so-and-so today, and she said, it's a lie, it's a lie. I hear her voice when he says, and I fear the Lord, it's a lie. I fear the Lord. He doesn't fear the Lord. He identifies himself and his God, but in the Old Testament, his world, the Bible says, if you said you feared the Lord, here's what it meant from Deuteronomy 5. It meant that you feared the Lord and kept all of his commandments. In Joshua 24, it meant if you feared the Lord, you served him in sincerity and in faithfulness. You put away the gods that others had served and you served the Lord. In Psalm 25, if you feared the Lord, it meant you would receive God's instruction and you would walk in the way that He chose for your life. You would have well-being in your soul and you would have offspring that would inherit the Lord. Jonah has shown zero evidence that he fears God. Some of us are hesitant to share the gospel, I believe, because we're afraid our lives are liabilities and not assets to that story. How you living? If you walked up to somebody in a meeting and the question comes up, hey, who are you? Whose are you? And you say, I'm a Christian. I love Jesus. Would they go, huh? Really? You? You're a Christian? How would that be? In a billion years ever, that's not a good sign. Well, at work, we try to keep work and Jesus separate. Uh, Give me a break. Do you claim to be Christian because you're just not Hindu or Buddhist or an atheist? As you're claiming the name of Jesus Christ as your main identity, uh, because your life is living in a way that points to Him. These men knew something was up when Jonah said, I just, it's not there. But I'm imagining, again, if Pure Flix got a hold of it, every one of them on the stage, it cuts to every face as they says, I'm a Hebrew and the God that I fear. They're all going, what? Jonah's a contradiction. So the men are like, hey, how can we help you fix this? Verse 11, they start trying to figure out something they can do. Verse 11, they're like, what shall we do then so the sea may quiet down for us? Yeah, your awesome fearing of your God is about to cost us our lives. Can we help you do better? You know, when pagans are wanting to help you be a better Christian, there's something up. It's not a good day. You're not really living out the gospel the way we should Listen to me carefully, though. Your friends and your loved ones may earnestly desire to help you do better. Teenager, hear me this morning. Your mom and your dad love you, and they want to see you run hard for Jesus, but they can't make you do it. Mom, dad, your young people want to see you love God and run hard for Jesus. Friend, guest, Other people can't live your life for you. You've got to decide, you've got to commit, and you've got to follow through for yourself. Well, God used the storm, He's used the sailors, and now He's going to use the sea in the last few verses. We won't read all the verses. But He said to them in verse 12, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you, for I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Let me say a word to you this morning pretty heavy negative stuff. I'll I'll say something fun and flowery at some point just to make up for some of this, but Jonah is not being honorable here. If we look at this, we think, look, Jonah's like, just, I'll be a martyr. Just let me be a martyr. No, martyrs die for honor, and they die for the glory of something greater than themselves. Jonah would rather die than obey God. What? I mean, what kind of state do you have to be in? Well, the Bible describes that as all of our states apart from God. We are literally heading for destruction until we are arrested on that journey by the Holy Spirit that convicts us of our sins. And we recognize I am heading for destruction. I'm at odds with God. And like Isaiah, we have this this awareness that God is, is greater and, and holier and better than we could have ever imagined, and we're more sinful than we could have ever thought of ourselves as, and we say, woe is me, God, forgive me of my sins, I, I've dishonored you, cleanse me, save me, I want to live for you, that's what salvation looks like. But until we get there, we're all in this state, maybe not written about in such dramatic a fashion, but we are fully implementing our plan for our life, and it's leaving a path of destruction on everyone around us, and ultimate eternal separation and punishment. We can't call Jonah a martyr. God had a plan, and Jonah went his own way. God's pursuing the rebel, and he's pursuing him with the storm and the sailor's And now the sea itself, verse 14, they called out to the Lord, they. Who's the they on the ship? Talk to me, who is it? The sailors, right? The pagans call out to God. (laughs) Jonah's evangelistic even when he doesn't mean to be. And the Lord says, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life and lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. Now you've got to know you're a pitiful prophet when the pagans show a more proper fear of God. Then you do. Jonah draws these men, uh, or rather God draws these men to himself. Verses 15 and 16, they pick up Jonah, they hurl him into the sea. The sea ceased from its raging, and then, it goes on, the men feared the Lord exceedingly. They're ready to change their view of the Hebrew God. They offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. So was all this punishment for rebellion, or was this the chastening hand of God? Well, because Jonah was a prophet, we see it as the chastening hand of God. I've got a quote from Spurgeon I'll put up in just a moment. Let me give you one that gets there. Thank you, JT. Sin is a thief, it will rob you of your soul, it will rob God of his glory. Sin is a murderer. It stabbed our father Adam and it slew our purity. Sin is a traitor. It rebels against the King of heaven and the Lord of glory. And then he goes on to say God never allows his children to sin successfully. Where did he get that from? The Bible says in Hebrews chapter number 12, verse 6 the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. Don't look for a fish in our sermon today because he's not there. Look for yourself. Where are you? Are you rebelling and going the opposite direction or are you walking in step with the Lord? God has a plan for all of humanity. He's the creator. He's the ruler and the sustainer and he is worthy of our submission to his rule. His way is best but we have a way he designed us to live life to the fullest when we are right in the center of his will whether we have plenty or little whether we are well or sick we can still have an abundant life if jesus is the center of our lives regardless of our lot and how it's fallen to us. If Christ is the sinner and we're totally sold out to him, we're living in the way that brings him the glory and the honor that he designed for us too. But like Jonah, we go our own way. We reject God's rule. We reject God's instruction. We think we know better. We think our way is best. All of humanity thinks this way as soon as they have the freedom and moral agency to do so. Our rejection of God is called sin. It damages us. It destroys everything around us. It taints everything around us. It causes us ultimate suffering for all of eternity. But God pursues rebels. And there's a church full of them this morning to give an amen to that. God pursues those. Who rebel against his will. How do I know this? The Bible says God so loved the World. The Bible says, all we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way, but the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The Bible says in Romans 5, while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for us, the ungodly. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We've seen and testified to this that God sent his son to be the savior of the whole world. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as Some men count slackness. It's not his will that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Here's my question for you this morning. With God's call on your life, and it's there. He's called you this morning by his word. How will you respond? He's done all the work that needs to be done. Will you just say yes to God and no to self and run for Jesus instead of running away. You can't outrun him. You can't outrun his love. You might outrun your next chance, though. So be careful. Let's pray. Father we're mindful in these moments that all of us have decisions to make every day, hundreds of decisions, and some of them are seemingly inconsequential as it comes to eternal matters. But Lord, we want all of our decisions to show that we are in step with you. Lord, if there's someone here today who is recognizes himself as rebelling against you and they're bothered by that and want to stop rebelling and say yes to do. Yes to you, Lord, I pray today would be the day of salvation for them. Lord, be with them. Draw them to you as they repent of their sins and put their faith and trust in you. Lord, we trust you to lead us, to guide us. Your way is best. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand.